If you will, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I think like most of people my age, I originally learned to uh, fear the devil by watching the movie Exorcist. Uh, it was a horror movie that came out in the 70s, and it was a, uh, a very horrific thing. I see a couple smiles of other folks that uh, tortured themselves by watching the movie Exorcist, and I was uh, quite terrified. As a way too young person, I snuck out of my parents' household and um, went to a neighbor's, and we watched this movie, and for uh, months or years afterward, I was terrified of uh, demon possession where my head would turn around and I would speak in this creepy, raspy voice and shoot vomit at everything around. Uh, it, was a, it was a frightening thought uh, to be confronted by the imagery of Satan at that point. However, it was only much later when I was reading the scriptures, when I became a believer, when I was really exposed to what the Bible says about Satan, that I recognized how truly dangerous and scary he really is. We have been talking about the idea of temptation, and in particular, looking at the sources of temptation, in which the church has always recognized and labeled for us nicely the three enemies of the soul. The three enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, we looked at a couple weeks ago, this idea that the world around us very slightly sometimes, but very damagingly, orients us towards anything other than God. Uh, that through the, the inbred sense of what the world desires, that the world does not desire things that God desires, and so it just slightly turns us, and being creatures of the world, as we are, and rightly so, we rightly are kind of tilted off course by the temptations of the world, the flesh, which we are going to look at next week together, and the devil. Now, when we talk about temptation, usually and most easily, I think it is for us to associate with the temptations of the devil. That's our imagery of what the devil does. The devil is tempting us, and so when we come to a time where we think of the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the devil springs right to mind. A little bit earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 4, there is a short verse and that short verse says, do not give Satan an opportunity. Do not give an opportunity to the devil. Now, if we're not supposed to give an opportunity to the devil, it makes sense for us. We must come to grips. We must know our enemy if we are to resist, if we are to not give, this, not give an opportunity to the devil when it comes to temptation. So we're going to talk a little bit about the temptations that arise from the satanic powers, from the devil himself, but this is not necessarily a sermon about the devil, because there, that comes, there are other places that are fit for that. What we want to do is focus in specifically upon the temptations of Satan, and then specifically what we as believers are called to do about it. The scripture is crystal clear, and when I was uh, earlier in my youth, uh, I got caught up in the excitement of learning a lot about early American history, and I got latched into the Salem witch trials, and I saw, as I studied the Salem witch trials, how incredibly damaging uh, the superstition was 
and how blame-shifting people became when they tried to talk and blame Satan for different things. And I thought, that's just craziness until you come face-to-face with the actual damage that Satan can do and is doing in our lives according to the Scripture. Then we began to see much more clearly the power and the work of Satan. Well, again, we're not necessarily talking about Satan here, but we do need to start at least by clarifying three quick things for us. First is the role of Satan. What does he do? What's the function? What's the work of Satan? Again, Scripture talks about this because we tend to, in our own minds, imagine so much more and so much worse sometimes things than actually what the Scriptures talk about when it talks about the work of Satan. Obviously evil and obviously damaging and incredibly dangerous to our lives, but when the Scripture talks about the work of Satan, it usually identifies it in three categories, in three ways. First, Satan is the tempter. Second, Satan is the deceiver. And third, Satan is the accuser. The tempter, the deceiver, and the accuser. Well, how does he tempt us? Satan tempts us in the scriptures through his deceptions. Now, when we say Satan is the deceiver, we're picking up the scriptural words, Jesus himself telling us that Satan was the liar and the liar from the beginning. What does he lie about? Satan subtly for every one of us, shifts our focus and shifts the ground on telling us what is true. That's the work of Satan in his deceptive temptations in our lives. He tells us the truth is not here, but it's over here. He shifts just a little bit our focus away from the Lord onto something else. Now, we immediately assume that he's shifting our focus onto something that is wicked and evil, something that is necessarily bad. But that is not necessarily what Satan does. The scriptures talk about Satan's work of temptation in the believer's life by clarifying and saying he's an angel of light. He appears as the angel of light. That is that Satan very frequently says, you think, you, you've heard that the truth is over here. But the truth is actually just a little bit over here, just a slight shift. This is where your true good is. This is what is really best for you, slightly over here. Now, of course, the picture that where we get, where we learn what the true reality is, is from Scripture. The Bible is what teaches us what the true reality is. And Satan, consistently working against that, says, don't trust God's word to tell you what is true. Trust your eyes. Trust your heart. Trust your own feelings. Trust anything else to orient you just slightly off of what God says is true. That's the deceiver's power when he is tempting us with his deception and his lies. Take an easy temptation. Take any one of your habitual temptations. Uh, I will take for a second impatience, one of my habitual temptations. I get impatient with things. And what is Satan doing there? God provides a picture of reality where he tells me what he does is best. What our sovereign Lord does in this world, providentially controlling all things, including every minute of my life, what he does is best for his glory and best for his kingdom, and consequently it is best for me. That's the reality that God himself describes to me through his scriptures. Satan says, you know what? 
God's not paying attention to this position that you're in right now, the frustration of being behind this very slow person, the frustration that you have of, of going to be late to whatever event that you have that you think is so important. They, God doesn't take into account how serious it is that you get what you need done. After all, this is something that is very important and it's very good for you to show up on time. And all these other things, through his deception, he slightly shifts my focus just a bit so that I sit there and think, it is right, it is proper for me to be just a little bit impatient at what's going on here. I get frustrated with what's going on because Satan shifts the ground on me and he teaches me, tells me that something is true when it is not. He is the liar and the father of lies. Satan is the deceiver. And then he's also the accuser. A couple, for the past couple of weeks, I have kind of mocked the idea that Satan is that little imp that's on our shoulder that's telling us to do bad things and we've got the angel on the other shoulder telling us to do good things and the scriptures don't paint that picture. But there is a little bit of truth in this where Satan is whispering in your ear. He is the accuser. What is he accusing you of? He doesn't accuse God. He accuses you of not being enough. Jesus Christ died on the cross and took upon himself all of your sins, but not all of your sins. Think about how really wretched you are. You don't deserve all of the grace that God has to give you. And the temptations that arise from Satan tempting us that way by accusing us, by focusing his attention and focusing our attention on our in ability and our lack of blessing and how we don't measure up to the scriptural record and how it's all about us, Satan shifts us and tempts us to despair, tempts us to anguish, tempts us to focus upon ourselves, tempts us to depression, tempts us to anything other than the promises, the joy that God has in store for us. God mentions over and over again to us that we are his beloved children and we hear whispering in our ear Satan's words, really? You're God's child? You think you're good enough to be counted among his people? And that temptation to, to deny the great blessings of our Lord. First thing about Satan to hold on to, to, to remind ourselves of, if we are indeed going to not give Satan an opportunity in our lives is that this idea that he's a tempter, he's a deceiver, he's accuser. Secondly, Satan is limited. Satan is finite. Satan is a creature in God's world. All too often it's easy for us, I think, to imagine and picture in our minds this global cosmic conflict between good and evil, and you've got God on this side, and you've got Satan on this side, and they are forever locked in some type of an eternal battle, and God's maybe a little bit stronger because he's going to win in the end, but ultimately you've got this battle that's going on back and forth, and that's simply not the biblical picture. The biblical picture for us to hold on to that we have to remember every time we face the temptations we do of Satan is that Satan is finite. Satan is not all-powerful. Satan does not, cannot do all things. Satan is limited 
in what he can accomplish. What difference does that make to us? That gives the truth. It speaks the blessing to us of that great promise in John's epistle where he says to us, he reminds us that he who is within you is greater than he who is in this world. He who is within you. For a believer, that is the Holy Spirit. He, God, who dwells within you is greater than whatever is in possessing this world, whatever is here within this world, including Satan and all of his minions. The idea here that, G, that Satan is the tempter, that he is the deceiver, that he's the accuser, and that he is finite, comes into focus for us when we remember the third thing about Satan. He opposes God. His target, Satan's enemy here, is not you. You are merely a means to an end. What Satan is interested in, in tempting you towards evil, tempting you to shift your focus from God to something else, is to demonstrate, to prove to God, to prove to himself, to prove to the en entire world that God is not worthy. That's what Satan is about. He is seeking to show that God is not worthy of all those things that we know him to be worthy of. Everything the scriptures portray of the beauty, the joy, the grace, the overwhelming love, the mercy of our God and Savior, Satan is busy attacking exactly that. When you come under temptation, you realize that you are being deceived by the deceiver, that you are being accused by the tempter, and that, but he has finite power. He cannot, all too often we sit and think to ourselves, hey, the temptations of Satan are just too much for me. I can't withstand them. Uh, given the temptations, let's say, of a substance abuse situation, or the temptation of, uh, of, of anger or gossip, or the way you talk about something, or just being angry inside, as long as I don't show it, as long as I just get angry inside, and I can't stop that, the temptation is just too much. No. The scripture reminds us that he who is in you, our Lord and Savior, is greater than he who is in the world. So if that is true, then how is it that we are to resist Satan? How are we supposed to resist the temptations that Satan brings upon us? So recognizing that he is finite, recognizing that his temptations come through deception and through accusation, realizing that he is opposing God, how is it that we are to stand? How can we stand firm against the temptations of Satan? Well, in our text today, Ephesians 6, in verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of Satan, of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God so that you can withstand the, temp the schemes, stand against the schemes of the devil. How do we fight? How do we resist the temptations of the devil? Well, it says right here, put on the whole armor of God. Great. Put on the armor of God in order to withstand Satan's schemes. Look for a second here at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words... Ultimately, what Paul is talking about here is he says, in this battle, this battle is a spiritual battle. 
It is not a physical battle. This is not something where we battle against flesh and blood, but rather we battle against the spiritual forces in this age. Every temptation you face, no matter how physical it might be, no matter how physical it might feel, ultimately every temptation that you face is a spiritual battle. How do you fend off that? How do you resist that? Well, you say, it says here, put on the whole armor of God. Now, I want to take a look at this for a second. This is a passage that many of you have read or studied, and so you've heard this before. What is the whole armor of God? Well, a little bit later, Paul is going to list out for us a number of different pieces, but the imagery here is the armor of God. I want to focus on the of God for a second. Does this mean that the armor belongs to God? That God has the armor in order to give to us? That maybe he lends to us certain armor? Or is that just the armor of God? Is that just a, a, a euphemism, a, a fancy way of saying it's spiritual armor? Obviously, we're not supposed to put on, uh, you know, chain mail or something like that. At least that's not the imagery here. It's a spiritual thing. So when we're supposed to put on the armor of God, it just means put on that, that spiritual protection stuff that we're going to talk about, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, that kind of thing. Well, I don't think that's what it means. Because when we go back and we look in the scriptures at the breastplate of righteousness, what, who first is supposed to put on the breastplate of righteousness? It is not us. Isaiah the prophet says God, in his desire to conquer the evil in this world and to turn back the, 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 the power of Satan in this world, God himself put on the breastplate of righteousness. In Isaiah 59, it's a beautiful picture that he puts on the breastplate of righteousness so that he himself will act on our behalf. He takes the belt of truth in Isaiah 11 and he girds up his loins so that he will be the one that is doing battle. To Abraham, God says, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. It is on me that you must count and depend in all things. The helmet of salvation, the prophets talk about the helmet of salvation, not something that the prophets wear, not even something that the Israelites are to wear. It's something that God himself wears. And so the point here is, in the Old Testament, the armor that we're talked about is of God because it's the God's armor. It is the armor that he himself wears. It is the armor that he goes into battle with. And the point here from Paul is he says, take up the armor of God. Put on the armor of God. In other words, don't put on the armor that God has in a storeroom somewhere to give you. You are supposed to wear the very armor that God himself wears. We are, in the words of Timothy and in the words of Paul at another spot, we are to put on Christ himself. That's what it means that we're supposed to take up the armor or put on the armor of God. We are to not, not take on something from God. We are to put on God himself. We are to become the very embodiment of the fulfillment of God's temple. We are supposed to be that place where he demonstrates and where he manifests himself into the whole world. 
How are you supposed to struggle against the temptations of the evil one? How are we supposed to fight against the battles, the temptations that Satan brings to us consistently? We are to be godly. We are to be God-like. We are to carry in ourselves that blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so that that shows itself in every fact. What am I talking about here? How does this look? Satan is tempting you. You're driving behind somebody really slow and you're impatient about it. Or you get the temptations to gossip about somebody. Or you've had such a bad day that you just think the whole world is against you and you slide into a depression or anxiety attacks. Whatever your temptation is, at each stage, you say to yourself, this is a deception of Satan. This is an accusation of the enemy. And I have been given the very presence of God himself to be victorious over this. Satan is limited. He is finite. He cannot stand before the presence of God himself. And that is what we are to clothe ourselves with. Not somehow the breastplate of righteousness that somehow is a piece of God or the helmet of salvation that is kind of just a little bit of a salvation. No, we are to clothe ourselves in Christ. And when you are facing temptation, I guarantee you from my own personal experience, from the experience of brothers and sisters throughout this world, it's, it, you fight that off by embracing the truth of Jesus Christ dwelling in and through you. That's how you experience the freedom. But what does it mean to resist Satan? What's the end goal of resisting Satan? I want you to look for a second. Wait, before we do that, though, we do need to hit on, on this. Look in verse 13 for a second. Take up the whole armor of God. Compare that to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God. In both of those terms, put on and then take up, both of them imply some action on our part. It is something that we do, but behind both words is the implication that the armor of God is there. It is already yours. You're supposed to not go out and find it. It is there. Put it on. It's right in front of you. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having to done all to stand. Stand firm then. Okay, do you hear the repetition of stand? What's the goal of fighting off temptation? Do you hear the repetition here? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having the done all to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the blessed prayer of truth on. Okay, so you get this imagery of the consistent focus upon standing. I think all too often that when we have the vision of fighting, uh, struggling against the satanic powers that are bursting down upon us, the idea is, you know what, give me the armor of God, give me that shield by which I can stand against the overwhelming flood of Satan and the temptations that come upon me each and every day. And I just need to hunker down there and hide behind my shield for the end of the day. And by golly, if I can go into bed at the end of the day, I'm beat up, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. But you know what? The shield of faith has protected me and I've been able to withstand. I can just go to sleep. I think we have that picture. 
like the power of Satan is a crashing waves where we're, in, we're, we're waist high in the ocean and the waves are beating against us all day long, the temptations that come and the, and the challenge here from Paul is, you know, if you've got the right defensive armor on, you can withstand the day and it can burst against you. That's not how God used his armor. You go back in Isaiah, you look at those texts, you go back in Psalms, you look at how the Psalms talk about the belt of truth, you look at how Abraham is to use the shield of faith that God is. In every case, it's not defensive, it's offensive. The shield of faith is not something that just protects you, it's something by which you move into the world. The imagery that Paul has here is not the waves that beat against the person and at the end of the day, wow, thank goodness I survived another day. The imagery here is of a battle. And in the battles in the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, when you have two armies that clash against each other, how do you know which one won? It's the one where the soldiers are standing at the end of the battle. Those who are standing at the end of the battle have been victorious over the temptations that come before them. That's what the imagery is here. Not that we are fighting off the waves of temptation that can overflow us, but rather by putting on Christ, we move into the territory that Satan thinks is his that Satan believes that he is claimed as his own, that we fight off the temptations by claiming that land as God's and God's only. My impatience is not something that Satan owns. It is God's territory. He is teaching me patience. He is teaching me to rely on him. And I go forward, I stand in, in the face of all of those temptations when I stand firm when I am victorious at the end of it all, not just exhausted and wow, I could barely do this, but with the victory of the sword of the spirit, of the breastplate of righteousness, of the belt of truth, of the helmet of salvation. That's the way in which we face the temptations of Satan with the recognized goal that God just doesn't want us to survive. He just doesn't want us to endure. He intends for you to be victorious because you are wearing his own armor. You are wearing God himself as you go into battle. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, I know uh, that I speak to myself here, I speak to everyone here, all of us who face the temptations and the struggles that we go through when we are buffeted by Satan, when we are accused of his, by his work. Lord, we want to be men and women who are more and more faithful each and every day, not just to withstand the temptations, but to recognize that you are transforming us through the presence of the Spirit, making us more and more into Christ's image so that we wear his armor more and more faithfully as we go into battle. The struggle of our souls that you have won for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. There's not a believer in this room, there's not a believer listening at this time who does not have that full salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ. So having been given your armor, help us, Lord, to use it faithfully and completely now to bring your victory 
each and every day more and more clearly into our lives. Lord, make that so. Through the indwelling power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. And we ask for this in all things, in your Son's name. Amen.